Hi everyone, and welcome to the Never Too Late with Blake podcast, where you guys, the listeners, will join me on a journey with my guests. My aim with this podcast is to provide practical and useful information and tips to help you all on your self-improvement journey. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Never Too Late podcast, everyone. Today, we're lucky to have Mike Rolls come on and talk to us. Mike is a professional speaker, resilience expert, author, golfer, works with schools and corporate businesses, is a father, and so much more. I had the privilege of playing golf with Mike recently and was in awe of the way he hit the golf ball and the length in which he hit it, being a double amputee. Mike is someone who has shown an incredible amount of resilience through his life, and I look forward to delving into that more today. Welcome to the Never Too Late podcast, Mike, and thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Blake. It's a pleasure, and uh, I think uh, you you might have been in awe, but I think the feeling was mutual. You were just uh, <laughs> making it look effortless out there, shooting, I think, a lazy four under, um, but yeah, it was really good fun to get out there and see you know how you went about it too, so thanks so much for having me on the podcast. No worries. Thanks. It was great to catch up for a hit, and um, yeah, we, we'd been talking about it for a while, so to get out there finally, it was, it was great. How's your game Absolutely. been coming along since then? Yeah, pretty good, so it's... I've I'll be honest, I've made a fair few changes of late, so I've got to get myself. Um, I got some really good news. I'll be uh, competing in the, in the Australian Open as part of the All Abilities Championship at the end of the year. Oh, so awesome. trying to get my act together, uh, and I've got the the wonderful opportunity to work with the the guys down there at the Australian Golf Centre, including yourself uh, and Dean and Darren and some of the guys, to sort of help. Um, I guess work out some of the things that I can improve on to get some quick wins, uh, but also to, to start to think about the game a little bit more strategically so that I'm not uh, compounding errors because it's not something that I've ever had a great deal of in terms of coaching and mentoring. Uh, if I'm honest, if I go right back to the to the very start when I, I um, became an amputee when I was 18, golf was something that really helped me on uh, the road to recovery, but it was something that I was just kind of suck it and see type thing right from the start. It was you know, okay, swinging it the old way doesn't work. What do I have to do to improve that? And then it was all self-taught from there. And as you can imagine, over time, uh, you can get into some pretty slippery uh, (laughs) habits and things that probably don't help so much. So um, trying to unlearn them is going to be real challenging, um, you know, and I've I've been working on that probably for the better part of, you know, three or four years now, but really starting to get serious about it. Yeah, awesome. Well, it's a great environment down there at Sandringham with Dean and and all the boys. So um, hopefully that helps. And that's exciting that you're uh, confirmed for the Australian Open. So big summer coming up. Yeah, it's going to be good fun. It should be really good. Uh, I've got one tournament before then, which will be the Victorian Amputee Championship. Uh, And it's been wonderful to watch the evolution of uh, all abilities golf over the last three to four years, where now we've got a world ranking system for golfers with disability. Uh, and it's really people are, are really ramping up, um, I guess, their their uh, level of golf uh, and the amount of time they're playing golf. They're being recognized, uh, you know, with other professional golfers, men and women, and being combined uh, into tournaments. And this year is going to be the first year that they're going to have men, women and all abilities all in the one tournament uh, on the national stage. going to be fantastic. Yeah, that is definitely. And it's good to see that more and more it's happening where they're play- you're playing alongside us and yep. um, it's only going to help both sides of professional golf, you guys and us. So Absolutely. It's really exciting. Yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit about your journey so far and then I guess how you went, what changed at 18 years old for you, if you could go through that, that'd be great. Yeah, so um, I guess I wasn't born uh, as a double amputee, so I, I was always really um, healthy, active, young kid, plenty, plenty of energy, and I played every sport that you can imagine, uh, just always, you know, 
a lot of my life revolved around uh, sport, in particular football. Uh, I used to play in the Southern Footy League. I don't think I was ever going to, you know, go very far in my AFL career. To be honest, I was a bit too tall, uh, a bit too skinny, and a bit too uh, scared to to go and uh, get into the under underneath the packs. So. I played but um, to, a, to a fairly okay level, uh, but I went on a football uh, uh, trip at the end of a really successful year in 2001 as an 18-year-old uh, down to Hobart and Tassie. Um, and I remember just giving my mum a kiss goodbye uh, and she wished me well on the trip. Uh, jumped into my teammate's car and off we went to the airport uh, to go off to Tassie for you know what was supposed to be just a few days, uh, a, bit, a few laughs uh, and a bit of fun with some mates. Um, and that was the last memory that I had. Uh, the next memory I have, I wake up um, and I'd been in a five and a half week induced coma and uh, I could just feel pain all over my body and I, I didn't know where I was or what was happening. Um, and I'm looking around me trying to work out what's going on and I can see there's all sort of, you know, machines and tubes and everything like that. And I kind of, you know, sl- slowly starts to dawn on me that I'm in a hospital and I see my whole family and they're all uh, standing there and, and looking at me and uh, I don't really think I could you know remember the seeing a look like that before it was just sort of like helplessness and despair on their faces and i remember trying to ask them you know obviously in a situation like that when your life changes literally uh what felt like clicking your fingers uh, i tried to ask them what was going on and and sort of nothing came out of my mouth because i had a tracheotomy tube in my neck and slowly but surely as the doctors are coming in and i'm on all sorts of drugs to you know combat the pain and stuff that i'm in but it starts to dawn on me and they start to give me the information of what really happened. And apparently I'd gone on that football trip. Uh, I had a great time for a few days, um, probably a little bit uh, overindulged in, you know, alcohol and, you know, whatever you do on football trips. As I said, I don't have any memory of, of going over there, but uh, I was uh, all set to fly home with my team. And apparently I was rolling around on the airport floor and they said, mate, you're too, too unwell. Um, we'll call the ambulance. And they did. I uh, got taken by ambulance back to Royal Hobart Hospital and started to go downhill very quickly and um, I think at about 6pm that night, uh, so a few hours after I got to the hospital, they called my parents back in Melbourne and said, you've got to quickly get down to Hobart, Uh, your your son's got about one hour to live. Wow. So that's how how quick it happened and uh, it turns out that I'd contracted this uh, awful form of bacterial meningitis called meningococcal Um, and I guess it's... Uh, it lives on the back of, I think, 20% of the population's throat and becomes active certain times of the year. And, you know, the sun has to align with the moon and all that sort of stuff in order to catch it. It's really quite, rare. Uh, quite a rare yeah, thing. Well, yeah, so it's about, if you think about the numbers and particularly now with vaccinations against the major strains of meningococcal, uh, I think it's around about a one in a million chance or less of actually getting the disease in any given year. So just incredibly unfortunate and unlucky mm. um, to have had that happen. Um, a lot of people get stuck and stuck and, and, and hung up on that whole, you know, how did you catch it, you know? And to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time uh, and I never have spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I feel like I'm always been a really forward focused type of person. Uh, and um, I can ask that question every day of my life till the cows come home. I can get stuck in that sort of why me and that, you know, that questioning uh, mentality about why this happened to me and how unfortunate, how unfair that was. Uh, but nothing I can do or say is ever going to change the fact that I got, I caught this awful disease. That doesn't mean to say that there weren't some really challenging and awful moments, and some dark moments along the way. There certainly was. Um, but it, but it's not, not a question that I do. I spend a lot of time sort of uh, dwelling on and sort of uh, thinking about uh, in my life. And as I said, happy, healthy to uh, the realisation, uh, slow realisation as I woke up that 
I'd suffer these absolutely catastrophic and life-changing injuries. Um, what meningococcal does is it shuts down your system and turns your blood uh, septic. Um, so it's like a slimy substance. It can't pump and all your organs start to fail and you lose circulation at your extremity. So anything furthest away from the heart sort of goes first. Um, I lost a couple of fingers on my right hand. Uh, a little bit of my nose was taken away. My right leg gone below my knee. Uh, most of my left leg was gone as well. Uh, and my weight went from about 80 kilos down to 47 kilos. And that was externally, internally. I had liver failure, kidney failure, and, you know, a few bleeds in my brain. So it was wow. uh, all fun and games in those early stages in the hospital. And it was certainly um, um, a case of one step forward. Uh, felt like 50 steps backwards mm. um, in the early stages. It was a really uh, slow going process. You, all you want to do is is kind of get better and try and move on and it just seemed like setback after setback in those early stages yeah and well you have to think about like how lucky you were that your mates called an ambulance at that point that they could have said oh you'll be all right just jump on the plane but there must have been something that told them yeah. that, no we need to do something about this well you have to think that you know in the environment that we all know football club environments you know being you know tough blokes and macho <laughs> yeah. and you know at the end of a football trip you would imagine everyone's feeling too flush so i must have been pretty sick mm. uh, for them to to make that call um, and to send me off by ambulance and to actually not even catch a flight when it's only a quick uh, jump across Bass Strait, uh, yeah, must have been pretty ill. Um, and apparently I had all the classic symptoms of meningococcal, the stiff neck and the rash and all sorts, okay. so they knew that I was in a bit of strife. Yeah. And then when you look back at that moment, once you woke up five and a half weeks later, looking back on it now, do you sort of embrace what happened or do you have moments where you wish it didn't happen? How do you sort of look back on, uh, on that? Certainly, um, like looking back at the whole saga, it was the five and a half weeks was kind of a, a good stage in some ways. Um, I was asleep having a nice uh, nap, and my parents unfortunately had to, you know, sign consent forms and stuff for all this stuff to happen at their son, who they'd sent away healthy, which would have been, that I can't even hard. imagine now. Yeah. As a parent now, I just can't even uh, begin to imagine what they went through. But I guess my, my sort of battle kicked off the moment that I woke up and um, I didn't really have any choice. I had to fight. Like I didn't, uh, I didn't really understand. I probably didn't in a good way. didn't understand the gravity or how sick I really was. And all I was thinking about was, all right, what do I need to do to get better? Uh, what do I need? What's the next step? Um, and that wasn't always that simple, but eventually after about three months in the Alfred, they shipped me off to Caulfield uh, rehab where it was not really life and death anymore. It was more about, well, how do you move on? Uh, what's the process for moving forward through a life-changing circumstance that you have no, absolutely no control over? And, and I didn't even know. I'd never been an amputee. It was all very foreign. Uh, I used to think about, you know, pirates and, you know, war veterans and uh, wooden legs and that sort of stuff. And I remember them, the first day mum wheels me up, uh, you know, past the rehab, in the rehab ward at Caulfield General Medical Centre in the southeastern suburbs. Uh, she wheels me past this glass cabinet and they thought it'd be a good idea to put a glass cabinet filled with all these like antique prosthetic limbs and hooks and straps and all oh, this gosh. sort of stuff. Yeah. So I'd never even seen one and I'm thinking, God, am I going to have to wear one of the, like one of those things that was, you know, literally like look like a horse's leg. Uh, one of them I still remember, I've got a burnt into my brain. <laughs> um, but very quickly I, I got to the rear, I realized they were just sort of on display, thank God. And I, I, I got chatting to some of the amputees in the ward and, uh, you know, it was a bit of a baptism of fire. The first guy's, you know, a really good friend of mine even. So uh, even still all these years later and uh, he wandered up to me and uh, I hope I can use uh, the a bit of profanity in this podcast. Yeah, that's, uh, that's he wanders right. up and he looks down at me. He's, he's this big rough as guts bloke with one leg and he goes, mate, you're a <laughs> he says to me. First thing he says to me. So I, 
I, and I'll look at him and I'll say, well, thanks very much for letting me know, mate. We very quickly, um, I got uh, to know his name was Kevin and I got to know that was just his sense of humor and okay. uh, something I really, I learned uh, very quickly to appreciate. And he made uh, what was a pretty dark period of time, pretty light uh, by, by being able to have a laugh uh, in moments that uh, you couldn't possibly imagine laughing. He was a really great influence uh, during that period. And I'm very, I'm very thankful to, to have had someone that kind of understood and, and got it and someone I could connect with, um, you know, to do that, re- to go through that rehab journey uh, together. Yeah, that's awesome. And in terms of a support network, did you have that from that point as well, I guess, with, with Kevin and then yeah. your family and, and friends? Yeah, I'm really um, mindful when I, I do a lot of speaking in schools and uh, and do corporate speakings around mental health, well-being, some suicide prevention stuff too. I'm really mindful not to uh, – you can't say to people, hey, listen, if you want to get through anything, you can. You just got to get yourself a great family. You know, <laughs> that's that's a really uh, – a, a, just a total uh, luck of the draw type situation. We all have different supports and things we can lean on um, and, and different resources available to us to get through tough times. I was really lucky to have a great family. My mum and dad uh, were, were there every step of the way. And honestly, I'd really um, struggle to think where I would have been and how that process of, of recovery would have been had I not have had that support uh, in there. Um, and now, many, many years on, there's there's a there's a whole lot of uh, more of an emphasis on, you know, the mental health support um, through that process and uh, also uh, great charities like the one that I have a, a hell of a lot to do with Libs for Life, but um, pair people up. Uh, with lived experience, similar lived experience, so amputee uh, peer support. And I guess I'm passionate about that because, uh, to be perfectly honest and, and even to at the risk of sounding selfish, um, it's it was really helpful f- to me, but it's also really uh, beneficial for the people delivering peer support too, know that you're giving something back mm. and know that you're shedding some light um, on a situation that can be absolutely fil- filled with stress and anxiety because... Um, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And in those stages, um, you do hear often uh, people that lose a limb suddenly uh, will think that their life's over and they have nothing to live for until uh, sometimes you even see them sit up in their, in their hospital bed or their wheelchair when they see another amputee walk in and they say, oh, wow, that's that's amazing. Look what you can do. Wow, those legs walk, they move really well. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to, to be able to help other people through that, that source of peer support. So Yeah, that must give such a sense of hope and optimism to those people. Yeah, I hope so. And I, I guess it's a really valuable thing because I guess the, the process, um, you know, you lose a limb, you're in a hospital environment where you've, you don't know a lot about, you you're lose your confidence as well. 100% your confidence goes down the drain and all of a sudden you're very... Uh, I guess, not easily influenced, but you do take advice from people uh, in that setting because they do know better than what you do. And then uh, often you'll be told about what the future will hold. So what are the processes? What are the stages I'll be going through? Uh, And sometimes uh, that's a wonderful thing and it's all well-meaning, but uh, being able to talk to someone that's actually experienced and walked that road before is such a valuable thing and something that I think should be, uh, I might be biased, but I think it should be written into policy in hospitals Mm. Um, to have trained people, so not just anyone walking in and saying whatever, but people with, with adequate training to go in there and to, to be part of that recovery process, uh, I think would be a really great step forward for all amputees in the country and all people with disability. Absolutely, because I think too often we can we can all learn from a book or read something sort of um, in a dry sense, but once someone's actually been through it, yep. it can just can be so, so impactful that way. Yeah. And sometimes it's a really small questions that you just love, you're just itching and burning to ask that you can't ask someone mm. who hasn't 
been through that you know like how do you go to how do you how do you go to the toilet at night mm. or you know how do you have a shower uh those small things or can you get in the, can you get in the ocean and go for a swim and stuff like that um and they're all small things uh, and then there's the bigger things that go along with it but it's that whole peer-to-peer relationship i mean it's 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 not this is not different to a, a new or different concept by any means i mean birds of a, a, a feather flock together right so you know golfers hang out with golfers mm. and you know we all seem to gravitate to people with similar interests and similar experiences and that's why i think it's such a yeah it's such a really uh, valuable thing and um, by extension to that something i've been uh, really privileged to be involved in many years later is combining my passion for golf with the peer support and we have a wonderful network of amputee golf associations around australia and when we get together i mean some of the banter that you hear on the fairways and stuff you know we don't sit there and go hey mate how'd you lose your leg like it's probably a <laughs> 3.2 second conversation yeah. and then they're just giving each other shit the whole time and there's no uh there's no uh leniency given to anyone depending on whatever they've been through or what amputation type they are. So it's just a level playing field and we all just go at it it's brilliant yeah that, that that's great what an environment that that would breed and smiles yeah, and, and everything so important so when you look back at the moment you were told that you lost your leg and lost a, f- a few fingers and etc how did you feel in that moment did that sort of was it really difficult for you or did you sort of take it in yeah. your stride like you sort of say Oh, no, I definitely didn't. I don't think anyone could take that in their, their stride. And maybe it, it, if you know me and we've only known each other for a short period of time and other people that meet me, they might think, oh, you know, Mike takes things in your stride. I can promise you I wouldn't have, you know, back then it's a long time ago, but I didn't take it in my stride. I was devastated. And I spent a lot of the time, you know, uh, crying, lots of tears. And my parents didn't know how to support someone that had been through that. I didn't know how to, you know, deal with something of that magnitude. It's something that uh is the stuff of nightmares and especially for some for a, a young lad like like that just literally uh, uh relied on on my legs and my physical uh, capabilities a hell of a lot in my life and wanting to get out there and just kick the footy or whatever for all of a sudden that to be gone overnight uh was a hell of a lot to take in and it took a hell of a long time to to build up i guess an appropriate coping mechanism to deal with that and and that's where i think golf and being able to you know i guess get out some of that competitive spirit that i I have uh, in a different form, so football's off the table, but if I could do it in a different form, then uh, that certainly played a massive part um, in my recovery. And I think about golf now, uh, it's it's great uh, to talk about what we spoke about before, playing uh, in a tournament like the Aussie Open and representing uh, a side of the community that really deserves to, to have their place there um, and hopefully pave the way for other people uh, with disability, uh, whatever that might be, intellectual, physical, you name it, um, to be able to pay the way there and hopefully get give opportunities for other people will be a really powerful thing to do. And I think that's um, that's a wonderful thing. On the other side of that, uh, it's the mental health benefits of the game. Um, I remember hearing a great saying when I was in rehab, Mike, if you're feeling blue, touch green. And I remember how wonderful that was because it's so true. To be able to go down to Metro just like the other week and flick your phone off for four hours and not be disturbed, unless your wife's pregnant or something and there's or you're, you're waiting for a, you know the world's most important phone call <laughs> no one's that important just to flick it off and just to be uh, out there uh not distracted and focused on something that you love doing uh i really you know give the game a lot of credit for being able to get me through some some of the tougher tougher moments and there were plenty along the way yeah i, I find playing golf there's so many similarities between that and life like 
golf will throw you so many things and life throws you so many things it's just how you deal with it and keep going so yeah. i couldn't think of a sport and sometimes it's great because like you know you go from really being upset you go right damn this you know i need to go and have a hit of golf and then you go and have a hit of golf and then you're upset by about the third hole yeah. you just want to can't escape, escape it, it yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just, true oh uh, yeah no there's been there, there's certainly uh, agree with what you say there's certainly similarities between life for sure so how did golf come back into um, your life i guess after 18 years old it sort of started i i guess uh having my dad as a big influence and, and my parents in general six six months after I'd, I'd originally got gotten sick they they gave me some good news they said mike we'll let you go home and i thought great fantastic get to sort of you know be in a familiar setting i get to see my pets and my dog and and be with my family uh which was uh, a hell of a lot better than being stuck in caulfield i can tell you um it was great news, but the nurse says you got to, you know, have to prove to us that you can shower by yourself, mate. And I'm thinking, wow, okay. So all my mates, they're all out doing what they want and studying and, you know, traveling and that sort of stuff. And I'm stuck in a rehab ward, you know, trying to have a shower is my biggest challenge right now. And I remember thinking about that and thinking, you know, this is a hell of a, it's a long way back from here. You know what I mean? It was, a, it was kind of a bit of a, a realization moment. And I remember I got myself undressed and I uh, got into the shower and there was a, a mirror on the way into the shower and I, I first time I'd ever got a glimpse of my reflection and saw the the true nature of what that disease had done to my body and, and I, I was totally shocked. I didn't realise just how bad I was until I looked in that mirror and I remember thinking in that moment like, man, I don't know if I can, you know, get back from here. There's there's a lot of stuff going on here. You know, I remember thinking if I'd hit, been hit by a car, I'd probably be better off than what I looked at. I had this reflection staring back at me that i didn't really recognize and i started to ask that uh you know a really destructive question in that moment i started to ask why me and i think that question is a really uh is a really forgivable question in a situation like that i think we all ask that question from time to time in our lives we think that you know life's got it in for us and those sorts of things and you know when i'm asking that question why me um i was focused on the past and wanting to go back i realized i was in this stage uh, the second stage of sudden change, which was resistance and not wanting to embrace or, or to accept what had happened to me. Uh, and as I said, all I was, I was focused on what I'd lost uh, and how I could get back to, to, to how it was before, which was in reality, um, never, ever going to happen. So I had that shower that day and then I, I went home and uh, and I guess that question sort of followed me. And I remember I got home and and it was sort of like the green light was for my friends and my teammates. Now I'm home. They can come and visit and all these sorts of things. And mum's like, oh, you know, so-and-so called. They want to come and, uh, you know, have a chat and catch up. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. I don't want to see anyone. Leave me alone. And I was just shutting everybody out. And that question was sort of, you know, front and centre that whole time. And I think mum and dad and, and my brother and my sister and, you know, I had one or two close friends that I, I would let come and see me, but it wasn't exactly, a, you know, you know, a, a, a happy chat or anything like that i was in a really uh, pretty slippery uh, on a pretty slippery slope at that point in time and my old man Ian, he probably picked up on it and um yeah he must have thought like uh you know any mentor or father or someone that uh you know is 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 mindful of these sorts of things he must have realized that he needed to kind of have a little bit of intervention and and do something at that point in time because Clearly, I didn't have the answers. I didn't know how to uh, shift out of that mindset into something a little bit more productive. And I didn't really see a lot of hope in my future at that point. Um, and he kind of, one day, uh, it sort of started where he's like, hey, mate, what are you doing? Uh, it was on a Sunday. And I said, not much. I'm just in bed. I watch telly. And he says, uh, Carl, we're going to go out. 
he says to me and and i said no no i don't want to go out it means i'm gonna have to get up and put my leg on and all this shit, and i don't want to do it and i sort of just started throwing excuses at him and you know when you've got someone uh, whether it's a coach or uh or someone in your life that you know you say no and then straight away they just grab you anyway and take yeah. you you know they just kind of push you it's it's just you don't have a choice in the matter that's what the situation was so dad was adamant he helps me into the chair and he got me into the car and we started driving and i remember you know we got a you know a little way down the coast uh and i sort of thought to myself i'm in a lot of pain now i want to go home to bed it's been a big week at rehab and you know it's all about dad and i turned to him i said dad turn the car around i want to go home i'm in pain mate and he says oh come on he goes we'll keep on going and he and he just ignored me again and he keeps on driving and then we uh get about 45 minutes down towards the morning peninsula and we're driving and i'm pretty furious at him at this point because i realized you know he's been you know it's all about him he's being selfish he doesn't understand what i'm going through right now and i said mate I need to get home right now. I didn't bring any Panadol and I just started, you know, laying it on him and he goes, all good. He goes, we'll turn over, turn around in five minutes. And then I remember he turned the car into, he went down sort of Browns Road down there on the Mornington Peninsula and, and went to, down towards uh, the Dunes. And the Dunes golf course is actually somewhere where um, we had a really lot of great memories there. Dad used to pick me up from school in year sort of seven, eight, nine from St. Bede's and we'd he'd, he'd nick past and we'd go down and have a, an afternoon down <laughs> at the Dunes. And, um, it was sort of our little secret. So when he turns the car into the dunes, I sort of said, what are we doing here? And he goes, I'm just going to go up and go to the toilet. He parked the car and left me there and he just left. And uh, I was just cursing him. I thought, you know, what's he doing? Like, well, I need to get home. Still 45 minutes away from home. I'm in all sorts of pain here. And then I remember seeing him in the distance and he's coming back and he's driving a golf cart. And I'm thinking, what that? what's he doing, right? And we opened the door and I just screamed at him and, and let him have it. I said, you know, what the hell are you doing with this? And he looks at me, he goes, hey, Mike, he goes, I've got an idea, mate. He goes, let's go for a drive. And all the excuses and all the why me started to sort of bubble up. And I'm like, no, there's no way that I can go for a drive. I only just learned to get from a wheelchair to a car, from a car to a wheelchair. I've only learned to put this leg on for a few seconds at a time and balance on it for a few seconds at a time. I'm stuffed, mate. I'm really stuffed. I'm in pain. You need to take me home right now. And it's kind of like, again, uh, same old story, just totally missed him. And uh, he was adamant. He goes, it's all right. He goes, what, just go for a quick drive, first fairway, we'll turn the car around, we'll get you in the car, you can go home. He goes, go to bed all afternoon, whatever you want to do. And um, I reluctantly agreed for about the 20th time and he got me in the car. We're driving up past the clubhouse up the first fairway and for a moment, all the pain just like disappeared completely. And I was just like, okay, you know, this is awesome to be, you know, in a, an environment where we had really great memories, you know, uh, and the, just the smell of grass and sun on my face and away from that horrible sterile hospital mm. environment and he stops the cart in the middle of the fairway and i'm thinking what now and he snuck a, a seven iron into the cart and oh. it pulls a golf ball out of his pocket and he says mike he goes why don't you try and have a hit mate and i said mate there's no way i can hit a golf ball i know you want me to but i can't do it how do you expect i can't and I, all the all the ymes all the excuses again just start to pile out and he says to me he stops me just interrupts me he goes okay he goes i get it he goes why don't you just drop the ball in the fairway? He goes, I'll hold you up by your hips. Just drop, just just grab the club. Just swing back and have a hit, mate. If you fail, if you stuff it up, no big deal. And I, I agree and, and Dad gets me up and he holds me up by my hips. I drop the ball in the fairway and I swung back. And I actually, you know, for the for the one time in a hundred, um, even these days, I made like flush contact with the golf ball. It was a really good shot. It went right, like sailing right down middle of the fairway um and he was so excited that he starts clapping and he totally forgot to hold me and drop me flat on my face oh, no. on the fairway 
and uh, it was it was a, a bit of a moment we shared. And he uh, he sort of danced around like a cat on a hot tin roof. He thought, oh shit, I bloody hurt him more than he's already hurt. He's in a bit of a bad way anyway. And uh, and uh, we both just sort of burst into laughter, and we shared a really, I guess, a really um, special moment there together. Um, and something that I, I share that story quite a bit in my sessions because. I think we all have someone like my dad in our lives that can push us when we know that we, when we feel like we don't need uh, to be pushed. And uh, in that moment there, I realized that I had to make a choice. You know, I had had to make this choice that if I had any uh, hope whatsoever of moving on from a circumstance I had no control over, I had to stop asking that really destructive question, why me, and start focusing on something a little bit better. And that was what's next. And I think that that um, proved to me that, hey, I can't play footy anymore. Um, I can whinge and moan about that, or I can start to focus my energy onto something that I can do, something a little bit more um, practical, something that I really enjoy. And that's where I think golf uh, became a huge part of my life um, on a lot of areas. Um, and now it's it's become a um, you know part of my life in terms of getting other people involved in the game. Just because, again, it comes back to that peer support thing where I, I realized with peer support how much it was helpful to me uh, same thing with golf and then to be able to give that to other people uh, to hopefully improve and to uh, improve their mental health and to give them something that they can, um, you know, people always talk about those running blades and those sorts of things. You use them for about, you know, two or three years and then you probably hang them up. Golf's something that amputees can do uh, well into their 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, it's a really accessible sport. We can get in and out of bunkers. Um, there's really not a lot of restrictions and you can use a golf cart too. So it's a wonderful sport for everyone. Yeah, well, you got to thank your dad for that persistence to keep going when you kept telling him to turn yeah. the car around because that's what a good yeah. story. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, no, no, he, he sort of just knew, and he's not that kind of. It's not really in his nature. He's not a really, you know, a pushy person. He was never, you know, domineering when it came to any sport. He just let us. He's a great dad. Like let us do what we wanted to do. Just support us. And I think at that stage there, though, he knew that something had to uh, had to give because uh, I was I was not heading in a in a really positive direction. And you feel like that was your turning point for a sense of hope and optimism for you? Yeah, I think so. Um, and a lot, lot of years on and, and doing the work that I'm doing, I now sort of understand what that process of change sort of entails and, and where I was along the journey there. And I was absolutely fairly and squarely stuck in a resistance mindset. So you got the shock and denial of, of the initial change and then you end up in this resistance stage when you go internal and start to evaluate things. I think it some point in time you know you do meet people that are stuck in that stage it's perfectly normal not giving anyone a hard time but at some point during that stage we have to make a choice on how we want to move forward and start to explore a different uh, reality that we find ourselves in um, and that that was a trigger that was a turning point from for my dad uh, he pushed me into saying you know what um, you can whinge and moan but how's that going to go for you if you keep doing that for, for much longer uh, or you can move on to something uh, start to focus on on the future and sort of what you can what you can become rather than sort of uh, be a victim to circumstance. And have you found with your research that when a lot of people go through this, their initial thoughts are the why me? Because I can't imagine many yeah. people thinking otherwise. If I was in that situation, yeah. I feel like most people would be like, why me? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's it's a difficult thing to ask people to sort of relate to losing a you know, limb, two legs overnight. So one of the things that I, I do spend a lot of time on is sort of bringing that back to uh, more of a relatable circumstance or scenario. And 
as a bit of a laugh in school groups, you know, say you have a shower in the morning and someone turns on the hot water in the kitchen, all of a sudden the cold water comes on, you have a why me moment right there. So there's all these, you know, these moments throughout the day uh, where you do experience things that, you know, are out of your control or even if they are in your control where you do have a setback or deal with some sort of adversity, you know, whether it's a large adversity or, or a micro adversity. I think that the, the way that we deal with it remains the same. And it's a really difficult thing because, as we said, you know, it's really difficult to overcome certain things in life. But there are also smaller things in life that we do uh, sometimes, um, you know, depending on our level of resilience uh, on any particular day, if we're feeling depleted and or overwhelmed, um, our ability to deal with those sorts of things uh, can be compromised. I think that we've got to shift ourselves uh, into a what's next mindset. And what that does, I think, is really important. It creates momentum um, because when we're feeling stuck, or in a rut in our lives, um, then we're in this stagnant sort of state. Uh, and one thing that that's missing and one thing that is not going to change is that all we want to do is sort of sit there, curl up in a ball and just not deal with anything. And that doesn't really, um, you know, do much for you. Uh, I remember hearing uh, another great um, saying that we use a lot on stage, especially um, with the mental health and wellbeing and suicide prevention tools. It's okay to feel sad. We all do. It's okay if you're sad, but just don't pitch a tent there. <laughs> yeah, that's and good. I think that's a really good one because it's true, right? It's it's a perfectly normal thing, exactly as you just said a moment ago, Blake. Um, I, I would challenge anyone to go through something like that and just snap their fingers and go, oh, it's okay. We'll be fine. Let's get on with things. You're definitely going to go through those those why me moments and start to have that sort of internal self-evaluation. And, you know, you need to go through that grieving process as well. I don't think you'd be human if you didn't. So... Um, it's certainly a, a normal thing to ask that question, uh, but at some point, if we ask it too long, it can it can be a little bit more destructive. So we've got to shift out of that into a what's next mindset. Just wanted to take a quick break and say that if you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and subscribe, follow and rate the podcast so I can continue to make content that you enjoy and can all stay up to date. Connect with my Instagram page, Never Too Late Podcast and pass this on to a friend or family member that you think could benefit from listening. Thank you for all your support. I really appreciate it. Now, back to the episode. I like that what's next mindset because it sort of comes back to what's in your control and that's something that I find is big when I'm playing golf is coming stripping it back to what I can control to. Obviously, there's so many factors, as you would know, that wind, everything else that goes on with yeah. golf, but you just have to strip it back to what you can control, and, and that's the same for life as well. So that what, what's yeah, next for is, sure. is huge. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing, um, you know, practice what you preach, and at, at times in life, I'm really good at doing that and shifting into what's next with just everyday life. On the golf course, I'm horrible at doing that. So I... I got a little bit of coaching from Nico Hearn and he's, he was always like, you know, I'd hit one bad shot and he'd go, he'd go, geez, you beat yourself up, you know, for three, four hole, like two or three holes later, I'm still going, oh, that, yeah, you know, that was, that was okay. But what about that shot, you know, three holes back? So he kind of just said, you know, you've got to uh, take a little bit of your own um, advice and not be so hard on yourself because the expectation that you're going to get up like any golfer and maybe you're a little bit, diff bit of a different case, but. I'm never going to get up and hit, uh, you know, the perfect iron shot every single time over the ball. So you are going to make mistakes and you do need to be a little bit more forgiving. Um, and I, I, I do do have a pretty ordinary memory and that's also pretty handy on the <laughs> golf course too. So sometimes if you're able to forget the, the bad ones, um, it helps you to sort of move on, move on quickly. Yeah, that's good. So just going back to your 
what you're saying about your public speaking and your corporate talks, what sort of things are you focusing on? Is it the, the what's next sort of reflection piece? Yeah. Yeah, sort of overarching stuff is is the what's next uh, stuff. In schools, we sort of um, try and give people a little bit more of a, a, a framework. So thinking about, um, you know, getting students ready for anything. Obviously, uh, it's been a really rough couple of years for students, but in that setting, so in the in the education space, working out how you can help them deal with when they're struggling with uncertainty. And just as you said a second ago, is about focusing on the controllables and then linking that back to, you know, asking really one-on-one questions could I control what happened to me when I was 18 and I breathed in at the wrong time? And they, you know, everyone says, oh, of course you couldn't have controlled. But what can you control? You can only control your response to that situation. So getting them to focus on really practical things is a really important um, piece of, of what you're doing. And then thinking about, I guess, the way that they uh, they they think about things. Um, so what beliefs do they have, whether it's about life, whether it's about themselves, and getting them to challenge that, uh, I guess, that toxic belief that we can develop sometimes. You know, I used to think about my left leg uh, wasn't always a double amputee. I had this leg that would never heal for ages. And I used to always just say, oh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's never going to change. I've just got to put up with it. And it was this belief that I developed that was, in reality, not true. And it wasn't until I, I got a diagnosis that I had a bone infection and the doctor said, you know, it's not going to heal itself. But I made a decision right then and there to, you know, leave it behind me once and for all and take the leg off. And that was a really big decision, but it was the best thing that I ever did. So it was, sometimes it can be, you know, if, it, if it's a toxic belief or whether it's a, a, you know, a friendship or a relationship that you need to address something within that, uh, getting them to, to understand uh, that, you know, your beliefs and what you're actually you know, shining a lot on your beliefs are really important too. And then one thing that we, uh, that I speak a lot about um, is deliberately using the word momentum as opposed to motivation because I guess motivation is more of a feeling mm -hmm. you know and it can come and go um, and we can't always capture I remember reading a, a really interesting study from a university in Sydney that articulated motiva motivation as uh, purpose combined with energy so making sure that you're fit healthy uh, and you've got energy in your life uh, but then combining that with purpose is sometimes a bit of a, a stretch for people because not everyone in life that you meet has found their ultimate purpose. You know, they're not always, you know, on this road that they just know that they were born to be on. So sometimes motivation can be fleeting. And unless you're really, uh, you know, got this amazing sense of internal drive, um, a better way to look at things is, uh, particularly if you're, you're struggling with your mental health or you're stagnant in your life, a better way to look at it, I find, is thinking about momentum. And that's all about taking the first step. So it's about creating movement in a stagnant environment. Um, and that's a really powerful uh, differential because I think we can articulate motivation more as an action as opposed to a feeling, uh, sorry, momentum. Um, and I guess that's uh, what action are you taking? What are you focused on? And how often do you do that? So it's about action, focus, and then repetition. And if you do all those things together, you create a little bit of momentum in your life and helps you to keep moving forward. Yeah, that's awesome. And as you said, momentum, taking the first step, I know for myself and a lot of people that oh, I want to go to the gym, I want to do this. But once you just go and get there, yeah. then you've done the first yeah. session and you can build on it. It's almost the... How do you feel, how do you feel after oh. it too? You're like, God, I'm glad I went. Have you ever... I don't think I know anyone that's been to a gym session and gone, oh, I wish I didn't go. Like everyone... Absolutely, yeah, 100% right. And it's funny, like, you know, even... And I'm probably being a bit, bit uh, harsh here, but um, I remember making excuses because I had the sore foot. Uh, and it would break down and everything and I'd be like, oh, no, I can't go to the gym. My foot's no good. And like, what a 
what a bullshit thing to say that is. I mean, I could go there, I could sit down, I could do so many things, but sometimes we can, uh, yeah, we can, we can get in our own way sometimes. And, and, uh, if we're honest with ourselves, which is hard to be, I think we can get rid of some of those excuses and have a little bit more progress and momentum in our lives. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you think the, do you think society embraces disability enough? And I guess, are they starting to understand it more and, and the landscape changing? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it's got, it's come a long way since, since I first became, um, I, I hate the word personally. I hate the word disability. I'm not, I don't, I, I don't have any issues with it. I don't use it personally uh, myself. It's just, I just don't think it's a very positive word. Um, I, that's why I love the all abilities championship in the golf or the adaptive climbing, uh, you know, adaptive sort of sports uh, movement is a really wonderful thing. I think we've still got a little bit of a ways to go. Uh, there's wonderful people like Dylan Alcott, who's a great advocate for the disabled community, Kurt Fernley. Um, many, many people um, out there that are, you know, doing some wonderful things and trailblazing the way and, and getting, some, you know, equal rights and equal opportunities for people with disability to uh, be accepted into mainstream, I guess, sport, mainstream uh, media. And, and the more we get uh, people representing our community, the better. Because one in five people live with a disability in Australia. It's a huge, huge number. And I think every one of those uh, people deserve the same uh, rights and opportunities that we all get. Um, it is, uh, it is a, a, I guess, really uh, heartening to see how far um, we've come in the sport of golf and it's something that I, I didn't think we'd get this far this quickly just typically golf has been a little bit more traditional uh traditionally minded sport um still not in the paralympics funnily enough um but they're working oh, wow. hard on getting that into okay. the paralympics yeah and probably uh you know sports like tennis and uh, and and following the lead of sports like tennis to to get more representation of people with disabilities and uh, what a wonderful thing uh christian hamilton from golf australia he's he's uh i guess someone talking about uh, finding your purpose and in life he's definitely found it and it's to um, give people with disability the opportunity to play our great sport and uh, he's been uh, instrumental in getting us um, you know in the Australian All Abilities Championship which is going to be taking place at the end of the year uh, the top six ranked uh, players with disability around the world will get flown out here treated the same as all the other players same opportunities and get to uh, showcase some remarkable golf with a variety of disabilities and uh, I still still uh, remember being in Sydney at the very first one and we had people coming up to us on the ropes um, and saying, you know, not so much there like golf nuts or anything. I remember this woman coming up and she goes, I've been standing here all day and she was drinking champagnes on one of the, the <laughs> things. And she goes, I've been standing here all day and she goes, and she goes, I haven't, couldn't, couldn't be asked with a golf. But when I saw you guys coming up, it was a highlight of my day. And I'm like, oh, isn't that wonderful? She was just uh, over the moon to see uh, people uh, with varying uh, challenges, um, getting out there and playing what's notoriously a you know a ridiculously hard sport to begin with, um, but then you've got a guy uh, like, for instance, Juan, uh, the Spanish guy, stands on one leg and uses crutches, and he's you know shooting level par. It's pretty impressive. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess to everyone listening, come down and, and watch the All Abilities Australian Open Absolutely. year and watch Mike in action. It's very you'll be in awe as as I was. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. No, it was very good. So you're an author as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah, so a little while ago, I uh, wrote a book called Ditch the Dead Weight. So I got um, uh, stuck into that. I'm not, I wasn't always, you know, 
didn't think I'd write a book ever. And then uh, I, I guess it, it didn't come out of me until I made the decision to, to take that leg off. And I thought, because there's a, you know, I guess stories are a dime a dozen. And, and I, I said, what do I really have to say? Well, I, I don't really think I'm, you know, interesting enough to write a book or anything like that. And then uh, I had some really great advice around, you know, what could you uh, tell people uh, that will help them in their lives? So what, how could you articulate it so that it gives people some takeaway value? And um, and I really thought deeply and hard about that question. And it really was just about not accepting things in your life that you don't need to. And and, it, and there the book was born about that decision to, to get rid of that uh, dead weight that I was carrying around for nine years with me. And uh, my only regret was not doing it sooner because um, after nine years of putting up with something that I didn't have to uh, and making that decision, even though it was a really tough decision, I was able to stand up uh, pain-free, wound-free and feel healthier and happier than I ever had before. And I think the most important lesson for me was, you know, if you've got something in your life that you know is destructive and you've outgrown uh, and that you keep there anyway just, just because, uh, perhaps it's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to start to think about that and, and remove some of that dead weight that we're carrying around. I think we all have some dead weight in our lives. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be a leg, Blake. Uh, <laughs> certainly doesn't have to be that. It could be, uh, as I said, it could be just a, a limiting belief or, uh, you know, it could be people get stuck in, you know, jobs that they uh, don't particularly like and, and sort of put up with things. And, um, you know, I guess that the book sort of gives some practical advice on how to sort of change that and how to remove yeah, awesome. the dead weight. Awesome. I'll, uh, I'll have to give that a read. But uh, it's good how it sort of, when you were saying that, it sort of segues into, I guess, why I started this podcast because I, what I was thinking was that it's never too late to start your self-improvement journey or to Absolutely. improve yourself as a person. So as you're saying, it's never too late to ditch the dead weight and we've always got something that we can do to improve our life or, or, or something like that. So um, Definitely. yeah, I think it's very powerful. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's certainly, um, you know, it's a bit, it's, it's, it's not quite it's missing the point a little bit when you're, you're speaking, standing in an audience and you ask, you know, what's your dead weight and everything like this. And the guy goes, oh, you know, oh, it's me bloody, me bloody missus or something like that. And you're like, <laughs> mate, that's not, not exactly, no, I didn't mean that. So like just having a bit of a chuckle, but no, it's, it's certainly something that gives people an opportunity to really think, think about, you know, what have you outgrown and I, I certainly, uh, you know, apply that pretty regularly now and, and, and think about, you know, life is this continual sort of journey and it, it's probably a little bit of a, a spin-off on um, that Michael Madsen. I think it's Mike, what's that guy's, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck or something like that was his book. Oh, uh, book that's yeah. about sort of moving, moving forward. Very popular book, always front and centre at the airports. Yeah, I think he caught everyone with the uh, title of the book. <laughs> yeah, I think he did too. So um, just to finish, I usually like the guests to sort of leave the listeners with something that they can go with to um, start their self-improvement journey. So if you could maybe leave us with one thing that, that you think would be really imp- impactful, um, that'd be great. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I, I, I get a lot from uh, people, I do a lot of speaking with uh, one of my best mates is a blind guy. So we go and do community tours, health, well-being and resilience tours. Legless and Blind uh, is the old... Uh, That's a good name. The, the duo <laughs> name. Yeah, he's a good fella, Benny. Um, and a lot of the time, uh, it's a really consistent theme where people uh, will come up and they'll say, hey, listen, you know, Mike, it's, it's nothing compared to what you've been through. They'll say, hey, Ben, this, you know, look, it's, it's nothing compared to losing your eyesight. But And then they'll say something afterwards. 
Uh, I think one of the worst things we can do in life is compare our situation with others because at the end of the day, we've got to live in our own skin. We've got to go home. We've got to deal with our problems. They're real to us. And crazily, people say things like, oh, you know, but, you know, I lost my uh, my mother, you know, last year to cancer or something. And you're like, well, hang on a minute, mate. You're just comparing one thing with a really, really traumatic thing in your life. Um, don't minimise it. So I think that you know, understanding that we've all got uh, tough things that we're dealing with um, and also to understand that uh, you don't have to go through the one of the things that really irks both Ben and myself is when people say, oh, what have they got to be upset about? Why have they got poor mental health? Look, they've got everything going from you hear You hear a lot of that uh, mm, with I AFL footballers about that. And yeah. I really hate that. Um, nobody chooses uh, to wake up in the morning and not want to get out of bed. Um, you know, no one just says, oh, you know, I'm going to be depressed for this week or the next week or the week after that, you know, that's, that's my choice. That's what I want to do. That sounds like a great idea. You know, no one does that. Um, so I think that, you know, being a little bit more lenient, a little bit more kind to ourselves, uh, and not comparing ourselves to other situations, uh, and also being proactive in, um, changing a situation that we don't want to find. We don't, we don't enjoy or we find ourselves in is really important too. So back to what we were speaking about before, if we feel like we've hit a little bit of a rut or a hurdle or we're stagnant in our life, What's the one thing you can do today uh, that is uh, will help you to be a little bit better than yesterday? Uh, what's the first step you can take? Because uh, that will uh, ine- inevitably create momentum in your life and get you out of a situation, um, you know, that you don't want to really be existing in for a long period of time. And I think if I just finish off with thinking about where I was back when I was in Caulfield and rehab and I was, you know, looking in that reflection and I'm thinking to myself, there's absolutely no way back. And I look to where I am now. I think that lowering your eyes is really important too because sometimes if we look too far ahead and we create a goal, it can be a little bit demotivating if it's, you know, almost unrealistic. But what are the steps that are that it takes to actually get there? What's the first step in order to going on that journey and try and map it out a bit too uh, and create a bit of momentum in order to reach it because, you know, time's amazing. Like you do things consistently for long enough and you can, you can experience some pretty uh, extraordinary results. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what a great way to finish. Um, thank you so much for coming on, Mike. It's uh, Pleasure, been great, and, I, and I'm sure the listeners have got a lot out of it, as as I have as well. So thank absolutely. you so much. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me, and I uh, love what you're doing, and I'm uh, really happy to support it, and uh, appreciate all the... Uh, I know that we've only played it uh, once, but I uh, already learned a hell of a lot from you in, uh, in the game of golf, and looking forward to playing more with you in the future. Absolutely. We'll get out on course very soon. Good stuff. Thanks, Mike. Cheers, Mike. tuning in. This is just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice and opinions of guests are their own. If you have any questions regarding your health, be sure to seek professional medical advice.